Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. How y'all doing? Fair enough. Um, as we continue to worship this morning, before we dismiss the students to blast, which is happening upstairs, I believe, today. Before we do that, I wanted to give everyone an update on the building. Uh, we are still walking through the process. So if you weren't here last Sunday, last Sunday was our, our first Sunday in this space, and we have a contract to buy it. So we did sign a contract to buy the building, and we are trying to get all the things aligned before the deadline of the contract, which is November 26th. So that's what's been happening. If you uh, were here last week, you probably heard most of that. It was our first time in here, and it was awesome. Last week was fantastic to be in this space worshiping, not just because uh, Family Bible was in here, but be a bit about the, because of the history of the building. Uh, it was purpose built to be a church by Church of Christ, and uh, since 2005, when it closed down, it has been used for other purposes. And so we are the first church, to my knowledge, to use it for uh, perhaps its intended purpose since, uh, since it was left in 2005, which coincidentally is the year that Family Bible Church started. Just a fun fact. All right, so um, praise God for that. So this is week two in the space. We are walking through it. We have hit some snags with so, uh, some things like always happen in these kind of adventures, but I wanted to uh, encourage you all to continue to pray. What we're praying for is favor in finding a uh, financing option for us in this space. So we, uh, we had talked already about needing to get a down payment together. And we're making good progress toward that. But what we need to really do is secure uh, financing. And that could either be through a local bank or it could be through a national bank or it could be through uh, an investor group or something like that. So um, be praying with us in that, that God would show us his kind of path uh, for us on that. That'd be super helpful. And then uh, we will continue to walk that out together. So I'm going to do that this morning. I want to ask you to join me in prayer. And uh, we're going to pray uh, not what we want, but what God wants for us. We're going to trust him in that. So pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the chance that we have to meet in this place again. Uh, we thank you for the owners and the opportunity we had to make arrangements to get in here early to help us kind of build toward the goal of, of uh, buying this property, if that is your will for us. And we pray this morning, Father, a continued prayer that you would give us favor in that endeavor, that you would help us because, Father, you know we are not professionals. We are not, this is not what we do, but we know you and we love you and we want to worship you. And so if, it, if our places in this place, Father, would you bring together the necessary people, professionals, uh, help that we could uh, make that happen. I pray, Father, that uh, we always recognize our position as your children and you would be glorified through our, our efforts uh, as childish as they may be. <laughs> we love you so much and we thank you for the chance to meet here again this Sunday. May you be glorified as we continue together in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to go ahead and dismiss the BLAST students and the BLAST teacher uh, to head out, I think. Is that right? Yes, that's Miss Stephanie heading out the back door right now. So if you're of, of BLAST age, you can head to the back. Also, nursery is upstairs as well. It's in the other room, I think. And so you can, if you have a small child you want in nursery, that is where that's happening. It's upstairs. Hopefully you found all the other uh, facility, you know, we got food and drink out in the corner here. And there's a bathroom down the hall. So Feel free to explore. Someone asked me this morning, they said, can we walk around them? Absolutely. You can walk around any part of this building you want to, around the outside of the building, or whatever else you'd like to do. So we're going to continue this morning in our study of the book of Acts. If I can get to my first, there we are. And we're making good progress in the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for a minute. It's our, I think it might be our longest sermon series ever at Family Bible Church. Fun fact. And uh, it's been quite an experience to go through it. I'm not sure how you've experienced that at all. I know for myself usually when we're doing a sermon series like that, I kind of go, okay, are we done with it yet? Are we done with it yet? The book of Acts, for whatever reason, has not been that experience for me. Maybe it has for you. Maybe you're like, 
I hope we're close to the end. If that's you, the good news is we are. But the amazing thing is that the book of Acts, for me, has been so dynamic and such an experiential thing uh, that I'm like, it's really been a fun journey to walk through the earliest church history uh, together. Hear the stories of people just like us who are just seeking to follow God together. What a simple and yet profound reality. And so we get to do that uh, with them. As we consider our, this week in the book of Acts, um, I wanted to ask a question, uh, and, and it seems a very poignant question perhaps for, in my own life, um, maybe not uh, for you, but what do you do when you're truly afraid? Like when you're facing, we talked about facing hard times and things like that, and we've seen that in the book of Acts, but what do you do when you're really full of fear? Uh, what are your options, or, or what does God do? In those moments. And so we're going to talk about that today. I'm going to do what we always do when we get into God's Word. We're going to pray again, pray for His inspiration um, as we read and understand His Word. And so pray with me if you would. Father God, we've come here to learn more from you about who you are and who we are in you. And I know that with all of us gathered here, we have different experiences and different stories and different moments of our lives, but you are sovereign over them all. And so this morning, would you be our teacher? We ask that your Holy Spirit would instruct us through the power of your word that we could understand more deeply and profoundly the ultimate riches we have in you and that what, what you do when we face fear. So would you help us to work through that today? Would you be glorified? Glorify yourself, Father, as we worship you and seek you out through the study of your scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter twenty. Uh, verse 30. So the very, very end of Acts chapter 22, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And you'll remember that Paul was being persecuted. He was being persecuted by Jews, and then they found out he was a Roman citizen, and we talked about God uses your whole story, and we're going to kind of drop right in, kind of midway through Paul's journey. What's funny about the end of the book of Acts is it kind of flows pretty quickly from here to the end, uh, one thing upon another, and, uh, and we're going to kind of walk that out today. But the word says in verse 30 of chapter 22, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him, and he ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul to him, to them, and he had him stand before them. And so, you remember, he kind of preserved. Remember, the prophet had said, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem. And everyone goes, oh, that's terrible. Don't do that. But you remember that his binding was actually his salvation. He was preserved from the Jews and taken into custody. Well, here he's being released back because the commander wants to understand what's the deal with Paul. So he's trying to get away from like this riotous kind of attitude where everyone's like stirring up trouble for him in the temple. But he wants to understand what's really going on with Paul. And so he calls the Sanhedrin. A little bit of history here on the Sanhedrin that I want to share with you is the Sanhedrin was a Jewish ruling council. It was made up of chief priests, which would be the, you know, the holiest people in the Jewish, um, and the high priest for the great Sanhedrin. There were two kind of ways this was formed. One was there was groups of 23 leaders and elders who would get together in smaller communities and kind of make judgments over things. They would get facts presented. You would come with a grievance, and they would say, okay, this is what we think, right? But then there was this other thing called the Great Sanhedrin, which was 71 people. 71 people would gather together in Jerusalem, and they would hear arguments. As a matter of fact, it's been said that the way it functioned was like our own Supreme Court. Lower courts made decisions, but they could be protested to the great Sanhedrin, the great council. And so this is the council, and I want us to understand that we, when we start to listen to how Paul speaks, but this is the council that the commander, as an outsider, orders to assemble. He says, you guys get together, I'm going to bring this Paul guy to you, and you sort out what he's talking about. 
okay? And so the great Sanhedrin is, um, is assembled. Now, how do we know it's the great Sanhedrin? Well, because the, uh, the high priest is there, and we're going to find that out in a minute. And the high priest would assemble with the great, uh, the great Sanhedrin, and he was the 71st vote. And the reason he had 71 votes is so there could not be a tie. There was no tie. And he voted last. So the, the high priest would vote last to make the determination on what would happen, especially in a tie-breaking situation. So there he stands in the middle of 71 people. By the way, the Sanhedrin was set up like in a big semicircle. So they would kind of set up, and they were, it was all very kind of proper, and it was a big ordeal, very ornamental. And then they would put the person in the middle of the room, kind of like we are now, only, you know, all the way around. And you were very much like being examined in the moment. So Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. So Paul's like, the first thing he says is, I'm doing what God wants me to do. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So he has him hit immediately. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priests? You know, so this is like Paul gets a slap in the mouth and he starts back talking. But he's back talking to the high priest. And the people around him say, don't do that, Paul, don't do that. But look at what, this, nothing to this point surprised me in the text. But this surprised me what happens next. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. Because it is written, you do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul, that's what's surprising more than anything else. Not that he got slapped, not that the, they exercised his authority because Paul had been beaten and flogged and chased out of town. He had a lot of abuse, but it's popping the mouth and he turns around and mouths off and when he's rebuked for it, what does he do? He repents, he, he apologizes. Uh, brothers, it is, I didn't realize it was the high priest. I shouldn't have spoke evil of him. And I think that that brings us to a, a, a understanding about how Paul functioned, which is that we are always under authority. I have a tendency to see Paul as this kind of like great rebellious figure, you know, like this guy who's like, you know, just taking, a, taking people to task and he's out arguing people and he's, out, he's winning all the conversations and, and all this stuff. But Paul functions as one, and I want you to see what he refers to. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry I should have said that because he's a nice guy, or I'm sorry you shouldn't have said it because I, I could have been killed here. He says, because it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So no matter what Paul is facing, the adversity he is facing, he recognized that he, Paul, is one who's under the authority of God. He immediately recognizes it in his own error with the high priest, and he says, I shouldn't have done that. Because God says, I appointed this person to be leader. Now, so how does that work practically in our lives, right? There's so many times in our lives that we can get in there and we can think we're right and someone else is wrong. And we can re rebel. We can buck authority, right? I don't know if you're like me. We've talked about this before, but I have a tendency to be a bit of a rebel. I'm kind of like a, not a very rebel rebellious rebel, but I, I have the tendency. You know what I mean? Like, you know, enough of that. But, so, so you argue over everything. But Paul says, no, no, no. You've been given authority over me. Now, so here's some ways that that works out practically for us. You've, you've got a, a, a boss, you know, that you really have a hard time with. Or, or you, your, your, your parents' relationship, you know, or, or, um, uh, someone else in your life who has some authority over you, and it's so easy for us to villainize those people and say, who are you? Who are you? And, and it would be wise for us to remember, as Paul does here, you know, 
wait, God appointed you over me. Now, it's a little different, right? Because he's the high priest in Jerusalem. That's a big deal, right? It's kind of like talking back to the president, I guess, or something like that. But there's this idea that ultimately God is sovereign in these things. And that's going to be a thread that's going to continue throughout the book. That Paul recognizes God's sovereignty. And he says, no, I was wrong because God has said, don't speak evil of those that he has pointed as rulers over his people. That's our, our job, to not speak evil about them. And so he confessed that. And I think we can learn from that. A side note, it doesn't mean they'll be ruling over us forever. It doesn't mean they even necessarily inherently deserve that respect. But we're under authority. We're under God's authority. And God is a God of order. And he has established that authority for a purpose in the moment. And Paul's going to discover that. And this is a lesson in how we face fear. Paul's going to discover God's purposes as he walks through these moments with God. Look at it in verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of the Sadducees, and some of them there were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a great dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Parenthesis here in verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there is neither angels nor spirits, but all the Pharisees acknowledge all these things. Okay, now this is a funny point, I think, because I really wrestle with how to say this and stuff, but the way I I end up saying is division can be helpful. It's a weird thing, right? We always think, no, unity, unity, right? You remember that Paul was ran in and out of places, and it would say the crowds would come at him as one man, right? There was great unity in their opposition to Paul. Paul standing in the Sanhedrin, the verse that comes to mind for me that Jesus told us is, be as, uh, be as cunning as snakes, but as gentle as doves. He said that when he sent out his disciples to share the gospel, right? The kingdom of God is near. He said, well, when you go out, be as cunning as serpents and as gentle as doves, you know? There's this idea that Paul's wise. And he looks around the room, and he says, half of you believe one thing, and half of you believe another. Now, I don't know that Paul was intentionally trying to create division, but look what he does. He says, I am just like you, a Pharisee, because there are Pharisees there. I was the son of a Pharisee, right? So he begins to identify. The, another way we could say this is like this. Paul finds a way to get on side with some people in the room. The things that they have in common, he acknowledges them. He doesn't say, oh, all of you are, you know, evil and wicked, and all of you, and, you know, he says, no, I'm just like you. This shouldn't surprise us, because the Apostle Paul, as we said before, said, to a Jew became a Jew, to the Gentiles like a Gentile, so that by the grace of God I might save some. He's willing to go in the room and go, no, yeah, you're right. I kind of agree with you on this. And in, in this way, he brought up a very volatile issue, which is the issue of resurrection from the dead. Okay, real quick. If this sounds familiar at all from reading your scripture, it should, because Jesus had these same conversations. You remember the Sadducees would come who didn't believe in resurrection and try to trick Jesus with questions about resurrection. And Jesus would teach them about resurrection, you know? And so this wasn't a new thing that the Sadducees were making this point. So here Paul used it. So the division becomes helpful to Paul. And, and lest you think, um, two things I'll say as we kind of move forward here, that there's an accident. In verse 6, the word says this. Then Paul, knowing that some were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he knew this was going to be a controversial issue to bring up, right? So he did know that. Didn't know maybe how it would come out. But then look at the response. 
In verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. And listen to what they argue. We find nothing wrong with this man. <laughs> They're like, Paul's fine. Paul's fine. Immediately he gets some advocates on his side, right? We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? They're making the case for their belief that this is possible. The dispute became so violent that the commander then was afraid that Paul would be ripped to pieces by the crowd, and so he ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. So Paul again is delivered back from the Sanhedrin, back into the care of the uh, ruling party. In verse 11, the following night the Lord stood near to Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Right? Now here's another moment in Paul's life where God shows up and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm in the middle of this. A couple of things that I think we can kind of figure out here. Paul must have had a lack of courage of some sort, right? I mean, you don't need Jesus or God to show up and say to you, take courage when you're not afraid. That's not an applicable moment, right? But whenever you're really thinking, what is happening? What's going on here? That's whenever God might show up and say, take courage, you're going to testify. And he gives him more details about his future, right? He tells him what's coming next. What's coming next. So what lessons can we take from how Paul approaches the Sanhedrin? First of all, we don't, we're not deceitful. I mean, Paul doesn't say anything dishonest. He's not trying to create division for division's sake, right? He's saying, I agree with you. I believe in resurrection. That's why they've called me here today, because of the resurrection story. But he, of course, is going to say, because of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. See, he's going to make even the Pharisees be mad in a minute. But he's going to lay out, he's going to be honest, first of all. So what should we do? We should be honest about our convictions, never lying or being manipulative in order to win favor. But when we can find common ground with someone, what's the fear? What's, the, what's to be afraid of in finding common ground? right? Many times people will do that. They'll say, I'm, I don't, I don't want to agree with them on that, even though they're right, because it's going to blah, blah. Well, no. Yeah, we're, we're the same. I, I believe the same way you do on that issue. And this can be super helpful as we face hard situations. I agree with you. We're on the same. We want the same. Here's another way to say that sometimes. We want the same goal. You want to honor God? So do I. Let's talk about how we can honor God together, and you find some common ground, some way to move forward. So Paul does that. Picking up now then in verse 12. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy then and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So basically the next morning when Paul is preserved, right, they come together and they make a decision to kill Paul and kill him quickly. Like if you're going to wait for your next meal until someone's dead, pretty quick, right? Like that's not like a, that's not a six-month strategy not eating or drinking. That's like a two- or three-day strategy um, to have someone dead. More than 40 men, in verse 13, it says, uh, came to the, uh, were involved in this plot. They then went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we have taken a solemn oath to not eat or drink anything until we have, or to eat anything until we have uh, killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring Paul here before you in the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Okay, so the plot is the Sanhedrin go back to the commander. Hey, bring him back one more time, a few more questions for him, and on the road he'll be killed, right? This is, now, this is a dishonest conspiracy, 
This is what we, we should not be part of. And this is what they're doing here. But look at verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and he told Paul. I think it's kind of funny sometimes how the Bible like words things. That would be Paul's nephew, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> the son of Paul's sister should be his nephew. Just saying. And Paul's nephew hears the plot being broke, and he goes in and he tells Paul in the barracks, they're going to kill you on the way to the Sanhedrin. This all of a sudden has that feel of like a great dramatic, you know, like um, you could see this being a Netflix show, right? <laughs> you know, he goes in, Paul, Paul, you're not going to believe what they just said they're going to do, you know? But here's the, a lesson, and this is amazing for Paul's nephew. We need allies. I told you already that Paul travels with an entourage. He doesn't do this alone. He's always picking up people who believe in the gospel along the way and moving forward together. And whenever he, you face hard things, you need people to be on side with you. It's not a weakness to need help. It's not a weakness to need help. And sometimes we think that. Oh, no, no, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. Paul doesn't have that attitude here. And in verse 16 it says his, um, his nephew comes to him and tells him what's going to happen. So then Paul, in verse 17, calls the centurion and he says, take this young man to the commander. He has something he wants to tell him. And so he took the man to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Right? So all of a sudden, and I don't know the exact age of this young man. The, the, the text kind of says young man, so it could be an older ki kid. It could be a teenager. It could be, I don't know how old he is. But, you know, taking the kid by the hand and taking him aside kind of sounds like a smaller person. What is it you have to tell me? And he says this. The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of warrant, warrant wanting more accurate information about him. But don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him and they have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. And the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone this, what you just told me, right? So you kind of have this like intrigue where this, this kid goes or this young man goes and tells the, the centurion or the commander what's about to happen. By the way, can we give him some credit for accuracy, right? Some accuracy. We need allies. But is there something more happening here? How does it come to pass that Paul's nephew is nearby and overhears the plot to kill Paul? I mean, many would say, like, well, what a coincidence that is. Oh, boy, he was in the right place at the right time, right? And yes. But isn't there something to be said for God's sovereignty that even Paul, when he's under threat, when he can do nothing about it, he can't hear the plot, he can't know about the plot, that God would have the plot revealed to someone that could then act and do something about it. You see, we all need allies. Now, a couple things then we can say about this in our lives practically. The first, and I said it already, is needing help is not weakness. Needing help is not weakness. And there's a tendency we all have, and I think it's a part of our nature, to be, want to be independent, completely autonomous. I set my own course. I chart my own destiny, right? And that works until we, we run into a problem. But needing someone to be on our side isn't a weakness. As a matter of fact, the idea of having a community who loves you and cares about you and, 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 and supports you in times of need is a biblical mandate, right? It's normative life that you not go through it alone. I think one of the great lies of the devil is you can do this by yourself. You don't need anyone else, right? I'm talking about myself here too. I hear it all the time. 
You don't need anybody's permission to do that. You don't need anyone to go with you on that way. You don't need any help. You got this. No, I don't. And it's not a weakness to need help. So uh, we need allies when we're facing hard times. But here's the other thing. Flip the script. You can be an ally in someone else's hard time. I mean, don't doubt the power of showing up in someone's most vulnerable moment and just being with them, being on side. How much, how much do you think Paul's nephew's visit meant to Paul? <laughs> I'm glad you came. <laughs> you know, you can imagine if Paul's nephew heard this and said, I don't want to get involved, though. I don't want to say nothing to Uncle Paul about this. No. He's like, I'm going to go tell him what I heard. And Paul, is a pre and Paul is obviously appreciative. He's like, go tell those guys, right? Let them know what's going on here. I'm so glad you came. We have this idea that, um, that to be that person is a huge blessing to them. I heard a story uh, just yesterday of someone, and they said they were a very public figure, and they went through a very public uh, uh, failure, and, and they were living that out. And they said, um, in this case, it was being fired. Nothing matters. They were fired from a very public position. And they said, I was so hurting and so, and so much pain, but you, and they were talking to someone at the time, you were the one person who came. You showed up. And they were testifying to how meaningful it was. You didn't quit me, right? And so don't, don't ever doubt the power of being an advocate or an ally. Um, that's what we see in our own lives and in the lives of others. And then you say, well, how do I know when I should and when I shouldn't? And this is like the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. It's when God shows you the need, right? That was a difference. They all saw it, but one guy did something about it. God shows the need. The accusation is if you see the need and don't act on it, you're failing. So when you know that something needs to be said or somebody needs to be, you know, encouraged, do it. Be an advocate or be an ally. All right. So he does. He goes and he has this conversation uh, let's see, I flipped one page too far. Here we go. He says, don't say anything. Verse 23 now. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, of 70 horsemen, of 200 spearmen, and go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Provide mounts, that's a horse, I believe, for Paul, so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. I just want to stop here and just see the incredible response of, the, of God's provision, I would say, um, for Paul. He, uh, you have 40 people who conspire to kill Paul. 40. You have 71 people in the great Sanhedrin, some of whom know about the plot, right? But the response that God has aligned for Paul through the government and through this official channel is this ridiculous uh, attachment, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, all to go take Paul by night. Do you think they're going to have problems? I mean, do you think Paul is going to be safe from the plot? <laughs> I just want to celebrate for a minute God's, God's mercy and grace in over-providing. He's like, my Paul. My Paul. You won't touch Paul. And so for all the threat and all the bolsters and all the concern they had, there's no way. There's no way these guys, and by the way, I wonder how the, uh, the covenant went for them. <laughs> Let's don't forget they, they swore an oath to not eat or drink until he died. They might have starved to death. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay? Practically speaking. So they're going to then go and take Take Paul then to Governor Felix. The commander's like, let's just get him over there and Felix can hear the argument and Felix make a decision. Here's the letter. He wrote a letter as follows. 
Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I, but I came with my troops, and I rescued him because I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found out that the occasion, that the accus, whoa, I found out that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. That was the letter. So I'm sending Paul to you with the accusers. In verse 31, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and they brought him as far as Antipatris. Antipatris. Okay. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him, uh, cavalry, while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers arrive. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So now Paul has been moved, just like Jesus said, up to a higher authority. He's going to continue to testify about the gospel in other places, just like Jerusalem. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down from Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Teratullus, and they were, there they brought charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Teratullus presented a case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you any further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. That's quite an opening statement, by the way. It sounds like uh, today's lawyer doublespeak stuff. Uh, verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots amongst the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader in the Nazarene sect, catch that, and even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in this accusation, asserting that these things were all true. So like he's rebellious, he's causing trouble, he's made havoc in Jerusalem. And they all said, yes, yes, this is true. So after being heard, the accusers were heard. Then the governor motioned for Paul to speak. And Paul replied, I know that a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. And so I gladly make my defense before you. Notice that Paul is not afraid to defend himself. He's fine with that. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That's why Paul showed up. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple nor stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I'm just going to stop here in the middle of Paul's testimony. I'll notice some things about it, right? 
He's not afraid to give a defense. You know, his accusers followed him. He's going to go to trial. It's going to happen. But in the moment, in that place where he, he could have been very afraid of what's happening, he had complete confidence in what God was going to do, right? He makes a defense. Notice this. He's not afraid to acknowledge the things he believes in. He never shirks back from it. I acknowledge I'm a follower of the way. I have the same hope in resurrection as all of these guys, and I have the same hope, but I'm a follower of the way, which they call a sect, right? But then he believes in this thing of resurrection. And because of that, he says, I strive to always keep my conscience clear before God and man. Which is our next point. A clear conscience is key. A clear conscience is key. Now Paul makes a point here, and, and there, there's more to be said about this, and I'll say this morning. But he makes a point that because of resurrection, he tries to keep a clear conscience. Because he believes that both the righteous and the wicked will be raised from the dead, he tries to keep a clear conscience before all people, right? So he always tells the truth. He always confesses what he knows. Um, but he's also not afraid to acknowledge the truth of who God is in his life, right? So he keeps a clear conscience. Notice there's two parties he's worried about having a clear conscience in front of. It's in front of men and in front of God, right? And uh, sometimes we fall from one side or the other. Oh, what people think, what people think, Right? But we often will say, well, it's really what God thinks that matters. We, we serve before an audience of one, right? Have you ever heard this thing, um, all the world is a stage and I'm a performer or something like that, right? But the idea is who's the audience? And, and so many of us think we're performing before people, but the truth is we are performing before God, which goes back to the issue we talked about earlier of we're under authority, right? We're going to tell the truth. Um, it's not weakness, need help. Right? We're not doing this by ourselves. And here he admits it again, and he says, um, I have a clear conscience because I believe in resurrection, but I'm a follower of the way. And he's going to testify to what that means. I'm a follower of the way that they call a sect, this subset of Judaism, if you will, at the time, this new belief in a Messiah that was promised, Paul's going to confess to. And so I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and before man right? That's what he strives to do. There, there's a, an interesting thing here where uh, we can be our own worst enemy when we're not willing to have a clear conscience. Yes, I said that. I, I believe this and own it, right? Versus shirking back and saying, well, I'm not, I, I don't want to say that here. It's the wrong thing to say. Or uh, there's a thing where you've been accused and it's a right accusation. And how do you have a clear conscience? You confess it. You're absolutely right. I screwed that up. We sang a song this morning. I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. I mean, do you think about the words that we say? <laughs> these, these are confessions that we make all the time. And so we have to be willing to have a clear conscience and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. And Paul has said so many things like this over his ministry. You know, I'm no better than you. I'm just like all of you. Of sinners, I'm the worst. I'm the foremost sinner. I mean, he makes all these claims, but he's always speaking the truth about a situation, keeping, keeping clear conscience before God and for men. And we should do the same. It's a key uh, to facing fear appropriately. Verse 17. After an absence, this is Paul continuing to confess, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. That's why he came back, to bring gifts to the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonial clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. Remember, he made the, he made the oath, and the guys were going to shave their head. He paid their fees. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who brought to, who ought to be here before you and bringing charge if they have anything to say against me. Or these who are, 
who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, now here he is again, he's going to own it, that I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Right? So he's like, there's this one issue, and it's resurrection. And that's why they hit me in the mouth, that's why they don't like me, and that's why they're all disagreeing, because there's resurrection. He's now confessed it twice, that he believes in this, and this is the primary issue. But he says it's not a lawful reason for them to have me here before you, asking for my head or wanting to kill me. And that's the reason I stand before you today. In verse 22, you've got to love this. Then Felix, huh? Governor Felix, huh? the boss of the commander, the next level up, the governor, right, the guy in charge, Governor Felix, who is, what does the word say? Well acquainted with the way. See, they're coming saying, he belongs to this sect over here, like as if Felix has no clue what they're talking about, and this is an amazing thing, but um, God is always ahead of us. You know, Paul's, or Jesus told Paul, you know, you're going to go and you're going to testify uh, in Rome like you testified in Jerusalem, right? And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to go and do that. But the, what, what is interesting to see is that God's been setting the table with Felix already. Felix already knows what the way is. He's already heard about this sect called Christianity. He's already heard about this resurrection conversation. He's already heard about this person, Jesus, that Paul is claiming to follow and to know and to be, and to be saved by. He's familiar with the way. But we're going we're to find out. I'm not saying he's a believer, but God, God has gone ahead and, and prepared Felix. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends, there they are again, to care for his needs. He's not doing it alone. He's in protection, but he's not being judged yet. I'm going to judge. Now check this out. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul, and he listened to him, and listen to the word today, as Paul spoke to him about faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the, this is the point. <laughs> you know, Paul's like, I believe in resurrection. I believe in, you know, this is what the problem is. But here he gets in there with the governor, and he has a discourse on the, uh, I mean, he, he talks to Paul and listens about, he speaks about the faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul discoursed on righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Right? And he puts Paul out. I've heard enough. I've heard enough about it. And Paul's addressing the gospel in three particular ways with Felix. We don't have a lot more information here on this, but he addresses them concerning righteousness, who's righteous and who's not, self-control, and the pending judgment, which is just an ultimate ironic thing to stand before the one who's judging you and say, there's a judgment coming that will be true righteousness, that everyone will be raised and will face judgment. And Paul makes this case with the governor, Felix. And, uh, and it shakes him up. And Felix is like, oh, stop, 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 stop. I've heard enough for now. Um, by the way, it's worth mentioning that he, he's there hearing it with his wife, um, which is interesting, right? Because there's no denying it. It's not like in his private chambers. Like, I didn't hear Paul say that. And if any of you are married, you might know that your wife probably knows, or your husband uh, knows more about your sinful life than anyone else. 
<laughs> so it's not like Paul, it's not like uh, Felix can deny this um, and say, oh, I, I didn't hear Paul, I didn't hear Paul, and you know. You imagine those bedtime conversations? Did you, what do you think about what Paul said? <laughs> the conviction of, the, of God, like, is cutting through you. Uh, I heard it, I heard it, I want to hear any more. The truth is that God's always ahead of us. He's preparing, he's preparing all the time. But the last is this, and we're going to end right here. Obligation is opportunity. Um, in this series, in the book of Acts, there's been multiple times we've stopped and said, this is opportunity, and now's opportunity. And here's one more illustration of that. Paul does not, I don't know that Paul would choose to be there, right? He's kept under house arrest. He's allowed to be cared for by his friends, but he cannot, he's not free to leave. And he's still under judgment. He's still facing the potential death sentence. He's still facing the Jews who hate him. And in this moment, I just can't help but think, it'd be so easy for Paul to go, woe is me, woe is me, this is a terrible situation. God, get me out of here, get me out of here. And what Paul does is makes the most of every opportunity, and that includes his obligations. Do you think when Governor Felix called him in, Paul could choose not to go? Do you think he could choose how long he talked to him? Do you think he could choose when he, got the t- when he didn't? Paul is absolutely under the governor's rule, but it's an opportunity for Paul to share the hope of the gospel with Governor Felix, who's familiar with the way. And so the Felix, Felix has heard enough from Paul. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently, there it is, and talked with him. So Paul, again and again, would come and not take the way out trying to bribe him, but would continue to share the gospel. A judgment is coming. Righteousness is required. Self-control is an issue. We ought to stand rightly before God, right? There's some, there's a path to holiness, and he holds that up. This goes on, and lest we think this is really quick, uh, for two years, it says, after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant some favor to the Jews, he continued to keep Paul in prison. So this entire time, Paul is facing hardship. He's getting comfort from friends. He can't leave. He's not free to leave, but he continues to do what God has placed him to do for two years, confessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ in chains right? Bound. Not of his, you know, volition or his free will, but choosing to make the most of every opportunity. I've said this to you before, and, and I, I absolutely believe it. There are moments that God gets us in rooms that we would never choose to be in. Never choose to be in. Something's gone wrong, some tragedies happened, something else, but it's an opportunity for us to confess to our faith in the gospel in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, that we can confess that we believe there's resurrection, we believe there's hope, we believe there's something else coming, we believe there's a righteous God who rules over all things, including this moment. And those are powerful, poignant moments that we are brought to by the sovereign God that we might confess him before others. I actually believe that, that God's hope was that Felix would come to faith in Christ. I know that was Paul's hope, right? Paul would say it all the time. Oh, that you would believe like I believe. That's absolutely the hope. But ultimately, it's not up to Paul whether that happens or not, but his oblig- opportunity is to proclaim it. And he takes these obligations and he, he confesses it over and over again that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way forward. The funny thing about this is we're all in the same situation right? Like we're all following God together, and we all have failures, and we all mess things up. We all have accusations, but then we have this great, generous God who says, come to me, right? All who are weary, like come to me when you're wore out. Don't do it alone. Come and eat at my table. Eat with a king. 
Like, spend time with me. Believe in me. Whenever the whole world falls apart around you, like whenever you're in chains, whenever you can't, you're not free anymore, whenever everything's gone wrong, in that moment, listen, believe in me and dine with me. That's the reality of what God is offering in Jesus Christ. Because for all the hardship we face in this life, there'll be none more impossible than the righteous God. Paul's confession here that there is resurrection, there should be no more hard moment than recognizing that God is God and we are not and he is sovereign and he gave his son Jesus Christ that we might be free from sin. And in that moment, it's going to be great uh, celebration or great pain because you're going to go, yes, Jesus. Or you're going to go, oh God, I rejected Jesus. I didn't believe that. I thought it was a sect. I thought it was a subset of a belief system. In those moments, I'm convinced, church, hear me, that hardship we face in this life is only a, a dress rehearsal for the opportunity to confess our faith in Jesus Christ so that we're sure. Do you really believe in him? Yeah, I really believe in him. When hard days come, I really believe in him. So that on the day of tribulation, when we face the righteous God, we say, yeah, I really believe in him. Jesus Christ, my Savior. I don't know where you're at with that, and I can tell you it's just as easy as believing, but it's the most impossible thing because it's the gift of God. Like, faith is a gift of God. But if you're being woke today, like, if, you're, if, you, if you feel God's leading in your life, don't ignore it. Just go with him in that journey. Say, yeah, I'm going to trust you more. I'm facing hard things. I'm going to believe in you more, Father. I, I, I believe what you're son has done. I believe your Holy Spirit's living in me and changing me. I, I want to go with you. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And if, for those of us who are on mission, like on with God, like in his kingdom and being invited, that we would continue to live into that, lean into that, to face, fear, to face hardship with courage, right, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much because you have been so gracious to us and you've invited us into your kingdom that we don't deserve. And we face these adversaries in this life that are so insignificant compared to your glory and your righteousness, your kingdom, your authority. We face these tiny little hardships and we, 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 we can make them like this huge issue out of this tiny thing, Father, but it's fearful for us to face it. But God, will we have, help us to have a greater fear for you. Help us have a greater respect for you. Help us to believe more profoundly that even in the hardship that you are lining up your purposes and your glory and your kingdom and your way forward, that we could just live into it. Oh God, that you would build our faith in those moments of trial and tribulation. We believe you. Maybe there is a brother or sister here today, a, a man or woman here today who, who haven't made that confession to you. They've said, I'm just holding back a little bit. I just can't go on with Jesus. Maybe today's the day that they say, I'm, I'm all in with Jesus. Father, if that's for your glory, if that's your will for them, would, would you let them know that right now in their spirit? Father, would you lead them to just believe in you for salvation? To believe they need a solution that you provide, not something that man's made up. Something that you give to them in Jesus Christ, they might be free, they might know you intimately. Oh, Father, the Holy Spirit might live in them, sanctifying us from the inside out. 
And for those of us who've been so blessed to have heard your voice and to lean into your way, would you renew in us a spirit of faith that we could confess and move forward and believe and grow as you mold us into your image. We are so blessed to know you. I pray you would continue to lead all of us. I pray that we might more fully rely upon you and your gospel every day of our lives because Jesus made it possible. May we never minimize his sacrifice for our freedom. And may you be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.